0: Well, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bible with me. Let's turn together to the book of Romans. The book of Romans in chapter 4. As we continue working our way verse by verse through this book, we come this morning to chapter 4 and verse 9. We're going to be reading four verses, verses 9 through 12. And so if you would, look there, Romans 4 verses 9 through 12. And here's what we read there. Is this blessing, and by the way, if you wonder what blessing he's talking about, you can look back at verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Verse 8, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins talking about the blessing of forgiveness and ultimately salvation. Verse 9, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make Him the Father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Well, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching us that all that is required to be made right with God, to be justified, is faith in Jesus Christ. There are some who are arguing that this faith must be accompanied by a submission to the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, including the right of circumcision. If you were to be a Christian, you must first become an Old Testament Jew. By becoming an Old Testament Jew, you become a part of the covenant that God made with the Jews at Mount Sinai, and therefore you can be saved. In other words, more than faith is required. Well, Paul is showing in these verses that that is not what even the law itself teaches. In fact, in Genesis itself, which is part of the law in the account of Abraham, in the account of the father of the Jews himself, salvation was by faith alone apart from works of the law. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. Is this blessing, that is the blessing of being made right with God and having our sins forgiven, is it then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? In other words, do people have to become Jews in the legal sense, submitting to circumcision, submitting to the Mosaic law in order to have salvation? Or is it possible that this salvation is available to people who are Gentiles and remain Gentiles? Can a person remain uncircumcised, unsubmissive to the Mosaic law, not under the Mosaic law? Can they be not under the Mosaic law and yet still have the same blessings that Abraham had, that David had, the blessing of knowing God, being saved, having their sins forgiven? To answer that question, look at verse 10. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Why do we say that? Because Genesis fifteen six says that. God himself says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So everybody agrees on this. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the question uh, Paul asks is this. How was it counted to him? Before or after he was circumcised? And you see what he's getting at. Did he have to be circumcised in order to be saved? Was circumcision a prerequisite for his justification, for his being counted right with God? And, of course, the answer is it was not after. It was before. Abraham was justified by faith, saved, made right with God before he was circumcised. In fact, it appears that Abraham was in his mid-80s in Genesis 15-6 where we are told that he was saved, that he was counted as righteous before God. It wasn't until Genesis 17, 14 years later, when Abraham was 99, that he was circumcised. So in other words, the Apostle Paul was teaching that circumcision had no role in Abraham's justification. Even in the law itself, then, we learned that people do not have to submit themselves to such things in order to be saved. No ritual is required for salvation. Paul says that Christians in his day shouldn't teach that and churches in our day, folks, shouldn't teach it either. There is still churches that teach explicitly that a ritual is required for salvation. There are denominations that teach that baptism is a necessary requirement in order for you to be right with God. There is no salvation apart from the ritual of baptism. Most Baptist churches don't believe that way. But we do sometimes teach this salvation by ritual doctrine through things that we place before our people as requirements for salvation. Altar calls and sinners' prayers are not bad things in and of themselves. Used rightly, altar calls and sinners' prayers could be useful. The problem is people in our culture have begun to view these things as rituals necessary for salvation. So when someone asks, how can people at your church be saved if you don't have an altar call? They show the very reason why it's dangerous for us to have altar calls in our situation and circumstance. We live in a time and place in which many people continue to think that these rituals are requirements for salvation. The very kind of thing that Paul is arguing against here. Salvation is by faith alone. Faith is something that happens inwardly in the heart. There is no ritual required in order for a person to be justified. If a person has believed on Jesus, that will move that person to profess their faith. That's what baptism's about. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. That's what, about, that's what obedience each and every day is about. But these things are the fruit of salvation, not the basis of salvation. And so Paul is continuing to make clear the gospel. Sinners are made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, period. And aren't you thankful? Aren't you glad that it's by faith and faith alone? But all that raises a question. If circumcision was not a part of how Abraham was saved, why was he circumcised? What was the point then of him being circumcised in Genesis 17? You have to remember, Paul was still, I think, talking mainly to the Christian Jews in Rome, and this is a huge part of their identity as Jews. Especially when you you talk about the Jewish guys, they were circumcised, their fathers were circumcised, their grandfathers were circumcised, their great grandfathers were circumcised, all the way back up to Abraham. And it's just a part of who they are. They've always thought it was something special. If it's not about being made right with God, well, then what is it being about? Well, what is this thing about? Why why was Abraham circumcised? Well, that's what verses 11 and 12 are about. Paul was saying circumcision had nothing to do with justification, so let me tell you what it was about. And that's verses 11 and 12. These verses are very controversial. And my personal take on these verses is that the ESV, which I highly regard and trust, in this case gets the translation wrong. You see, in the Greek, verse 11 is very ambiguous, honestly. It can be translated in more than one way. And how we translate it largely depends on the context. And so tonight, our whole focus in tonight's message is going to be to look at verse 11. Let me present to you the different alternatives of translating it and show you why I prefer the translation that I prefer and why it's important. But for now, let me say that what I think Paul was saying in verses 11 and 12 is this. Circumcision was a generational reminder to the Jews that through them, God was going to save the nations. The point of circumcision was to preach to the Jews that their father Abraham would one day be the father of the nations. There was coming a day when the God of the Jews would be seen and worshipped by people from every ethnicity. The Jews were to live in faith and obedience waiting for the day when the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, would be born, live, die, rise, and bring the nations to salvation. Circumcision was all about the nations. Now, though I think that's Paul's main point in verses 11 and 12, there is a whole other discussion that is bound up with verse 11. And it has to do with an important question that Christians have been wrestling with for centuries. The question is this. Should the infant children of believers be baptized? Should the infant children of believers be counted as members of Christ's church? Should they be baptized? Should they be counted as members of Christ's church? Now, many of you who, like myself, were raised in a Baptist context might think this is a no-brainer, right? Of course, we should not baptize the infant children of believers, nor should we consider them members of the church. But this has not been the view held by most Christians for most of Christian history. And even today, we have many, many brothers and sisters in Christ who believe differently than us on this question. Indeed, my best friend growing up, still a very dear friend of mine, has had his own mind changed on this in recent days and years. He, he and his family have recently joined a Presbyterian church. Their young daughter has been baptized, though she's not old enough yet to, you know, to know the gospel or those things. I have no doubt that many of you have friends and family members whose children were were baptized a few days or a few weeks after birth. They grew up as a member of a church long before being of an age to to actually understand the gospel and believe. And it might surprise you to learn that verse 11, Romans 4, verse 11, is often considered the linchpin of the argument for paedobaptism. Everyone say... Pedo baptism Pedo baptism is the belief that we should baptize the infant children of believers and consider them as members of Christ's church and the local church. Pedo comes from the the Greek word pais, which means child. So a paedo-baptist is someone who believes in baptizing children on the basis of their parents' faith. Okay, Pado-Baptist believes we baptize children on the basis of their parents' faith. As Baptists, we are not Pado-Baptists. We are what's called Credo-Baptists. So everybody say, Credo-Baptist. Baptist Baptist churches are not called Baptist churches because we baptize. All churches baptize. Baptist churches are called Baptist churches because we are Credo-Baptists. Credo from the Latin, I believe. We believe in Believer's Baptism—that That is, we believe that only disciples of Jesus should be baptized rather than disciples and their children. Now, how you understand verse 11 will, in many ways, largely determine whether you are a paedo-baptist or a credo-baptist. Let me ask you even now, those of you who are members here at Mount Hermon, Are you a Baptist by conviction? Or are you a Baptist by circumstance? That is, are you a Baptist because you understand and are convinced that the Baptist understanding of these things is correct? Or are you a Baptist because that just happens to be what you are? Maybe you just grew up a Baptist and you've never left. Well, saving the more technical arguments for tonight, I do want to take some time this morning to show you why I believe the Baptist position is biblical and correct. And so here's the outline for the next few minutes. Number one, why do Pado baptists think that verse 11 teaches their position? Why do Pado baptists think verse 11 teaches their position? Number two, what are some reasons that we would disagree? What are some reasons that we would disagree? And number three... How then should we as Baptists think about baptism and our own children? So that's our outline. Let's jump in. Why do Pato Baptists think that verse 11 teaches their position? Verse 11 teaches us why Abraham was circumcised, right? Why was Abraham circumcised? And if we follow the translation of the ESV, we're told that the purpose of circumcision was to serve as a sign. You see that in verse 11? Circumcision was a sign. Signs exist to say something. Signs tell you something. A sign may tell you to yield. A sign may tell you to stop. A sign may tell you there's a McDonald's at exit 109. Signs tell you a whole host of things. So circumcision is a sign. It's meant to say something. In this case, it is God who is doing the speaking. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, but it was God who ordained the sign was God who gave the sign it's God who's speaking so what is it that God is saying through the sign of circumcision well according to this translation in the ESV and and most translations God was saying that Abraham's faith had been accepted and he was now righteous in his sight God is saying, according to this translation, through circumcision, Abraham, your faith has been accepted by me. I count you as my own. You are righteous in my sight through faith. Circumcision is called a seal. Do you see that word seal in verse 11? Maybe you've walked through Target and and you've seen a product that had a sticker on it that said something like the Martha Stewart collection. And that sticker is meant to tell you that that Martha Stewart's seal is on that product. She she approves of that product. She recommends that product. Or to give another illustration, you can think of the seal of a king. Right, The king is sending a message to someone, and he, he seals up the message by pouring hot wax on the document and then putting his signet ring into the wax so that when it dries, it has its seal upon it. His seal is on the letter. If they get it, they know this has been approved by the king. This is from the king. Well, here, circumcision appears to be God's seal being placed on a man to show that he approves of that man's faith, he accepts that man's faith, and this person is righteous in his sight. Verse 11, he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So here is step one in the pato baptist argument. Circumcision was a sign showing that someone was right with God through faith. Circumcision was a sign showing that someone was right with God through faith. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, circumcision was given to boys when they were turned eight days old. So if circumcision was a sign that someone was right with God by faith, how can it be given to an infant who knows nothing of faith? And the answer, according to our paedo-baptist friends, is that the infant was not saved by his own faith. The infant was saved by the faith of his parents. That is, God accepted the faith of the parents on behalf of the child. As long as he was a child, the faith of the parents would be sufficient to make the child right with God. As the child grew, he could either hold fast to the faith of his parents, keep his salvation, grow into his own faith, or he could reject the faith of his parents and lose his salvation and no longer be a part of God's people. But while he was a child, it was his parents' faith that secured his relationship to God. That's step two in the Pado baptist argument. Children were circumcised in the Old Testament even when they were too young to believe themselves. They were right with God through their parents' faith. Here's crucial step three. According to our Pato-Baptist friends, in these New Testament days, baptism corresponds to circumcision. In other words, they would argue that the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament has been changed, transformed into the sign of baptism in our day. What is the sign by which people say, I am right with God by faith? What is the ordinance God has given to us to say, God has accepted my faith and I am right with Him? It is baptism. And if children in the Old Testament... Were saved by their parents' faith and were circumcised. Then shouldn't children in the New Testament be saved by their parents' faith and be baptized? Let me offer some reasons why I think our paedobaptist brothers and sisters are wrong. But let me say first that we love our paedobaptist brothers and sisters. They are fellow Christians. They believe the same gospel. Just to be quite honest with you, most of my Christian heroes of the past were people who are Pedo baptists Men and women who are much smarter than me hold the Pedo baptist position. And so even though I do have strong convictions about this, and I think you should have strong convictions about this, that doesn't mean that we don't hold our convictions with humility and we must always be willing to be corrected if someone someone can show us from the Bible where we are wrong. That's how we're to hold every position we hold as a church. Now, that said, let me offer some reasons this morning why I think the Pado Baptist position based on Romans 4.11 is incorrect. First, I don't think verse 11 says what Peter baptists think it says. I don't think verse 11 says what the ESV says what it says. says. Uh, Pado baptists say from verse 11 that circumcision was a sign of Abraham's right relationship with God. I'm going to try and show you tonight that I don't think that's actually what Paul was saying there, but that's going to be a whole sermon in itself, and so I have to wait, and we're, we're going to talk about that tonight. But let's just say I'm wrong. Let's say that the ESV put together by men much smarter than me, let's say that the ESV translation is correct. I still don't think we can say that Christians should baptize their children on the basis of their parents' faith. Why? Well, just because something was true in Old Testament Israel does not mean that it should be true in God's New Testament church. Old Testament Israel was part of the Old Covenant. We as a church are part of the New Covenant. There have been changes. If there had been no changes, we wouldn't call it the New Covenant. It would still be the Old One. So clearly, for us to be in the New Covenant, some things have changed. One of the things that has changed is this. The visible people of God in the Old Testament, Israel, was made up of both believers and unbelievers. But the visible people of God in the New Testament, local churches, are to be made up of believers only. There is a clear change between the Old Covenant visible people of God, Israel, and the New Covenant visible people of God, the church. The church is to be made up of believers only. Old Covenant Israel was made up of believers and unbelievers. Let me show it to you. It isn't, by the way that Old Testament Israel was made up of mostly believers, and there was just a few unbelievers mixed in. No, it was the other way around. In the Old Testament, the vast majority of Israelites were unbelievers. The vast majority of Israelites lived and died in their sins, never having truly known God. There was the occasional generation in which a lot of people followed God, but most generations of Israel's history were generations of rebellion against Him in which there was only a remnant that remained true to God. Pado-Baptists often call Israel the church of the Old Testament. That if Israel was a church, it was a church in which there were far more unbelievers than believers. And yet, God sent prophets Speaking to Israel of a day when things would be different. This was a day in which the visible people of God on earth would look very different. It would not be this mixed bag of many unbelievers and just a few believers. Rather, there would be purity characterizing God's people. You probably already know where we're going, but if you don't, turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Let's see the promise of the new covenant and see the basis of why we as Baptists don't baptize infants Jeremiah 31 Jeremiah was a prophet sent by God to preach to Judah and Jerusalem that judgment was coming because Old Testament Israel was made up mostly of people who didn't really know God they lived in sin they caused other nations to blaspheme God's name and now Jeremiah comes to preach that God's wrath is coming upon them. And then, during Jeremiah's lifetime, God's wrath did come upon them. Terrible, terrible things happen. You can read the book of Lamentation to see how Jeremiah describes all that occurred when God's judgment came. But Jeremiah preached more than judgment. Jeremiah preached a day when all of this would be fixed. A day when God would not have to bring judgment on His people because all of God's people would be God's people. All of God's people would be living in His mercy. All of God's people would know Him. All of God's people would trust Him. Look at verse 31. Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, look. That's what that word means. Look. The days are coming, declares the Lord and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you hear the difference? This new covenant is coming. And in this new covenant, all of God's covenant people will know Him, from the least to the greatest. In the local church, God's visible people in this world, everyone is to know the true God. They are all to be believers. This is why we are to baptize believers only. This is why we are to discipline and remove those who prove themselves to be unbelievers. Unlike Old Testament Israel, which failed to be salt and light in this world, the church is to be made up only of Christians. Only of those who are truly serious about following Jesus as His disciples. And in this way, the church will succeed in being salt and light in all the ways that Israel failed. Healthy churches will be those in which every member is a true believer. Here is a crucial difference between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. Now there is another difference that we see here. In Old Testament Israel, God's people were organized by families. And this seems to be the way most Presbyterians or other Paedo-Baptists think. They they think in in terms of the family, and so they they baptize children on the basis of their parents' faith. And this is how it was in Old Testament Israel. God's people were organized by families. There were 12 tribes. Within these 12 tribes, there were clans. And within these clans, there were families, all finding their origins back in the the sons of Jacob. If you were born to a Jewish family, you were automatically in the covenant because of your family, really because of your father. Boys were circumcised because their fathers were Jews. Girls were not circumcised, but were considered to be in the covenant through their father and through their husband. God's people in the Old Testament was a collection of families, and whole families would be held accountable for the actions of the father. So, for example, when Korah, a Jewish man, rebelled against God's word, it wasn't just he that was destroyed. It was his whole family held accountable for his actions. In the New Testament, however, we learn that the church is not made up of families in the same way that the Old Covenant people were. Families are certainly still important, but ultimately the local church is made up of disciples, individuals who have professed faith in Jesus. What did Jesus say we should expect to see as the gospel goes out into the world? Matthew 10, 21, Jesus said, Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and the children will rise against parents to have them put to death. In other words, in many situations, Jesus said, as the gospel goes out into the world, some family members will believe, other family members will not believe, and will turn against those who do. This means that sometimes we'll have husbands who are Christians and not their wives. Sometimes we'll have wives who are Christians and church members and not their husbands. Sometimes there will be believing parents with unbelieving children and sometimes believing children with unbelieving parents. Because here's a crucial difference between the paedo-baptist view and the Baptist view. The faith of the Father or the lack of faith of the Father does not make any other person in the family a Christian or non-Christian, nor does the faith of the mother. Ultimately, each person must stand before God on their own and give an account for their own life. If you're still there, look at Jeremiah 31, verses 29 and 30. 29 and 30, where we see this presented to us. It's an interesting picture. Verses 29 and 30. In those days, they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. You see the picture? The picture is of a father eating sour grapes, and it is the children whose teeth are set on edge. That is, the children feel the sourness of the grapes that the father ate. It's a picture of how God had been dealing with Old Testament Israel. A father would commit a sin, and as the head of his home, the whole family would now be guilty of that sin and liable to punishment. God says that in the New Covenant days, this would no longer be true. Every man will die for his own sins. Every man will bear his own punishment. The families remain very important. Ultimately, God deals with people as individuals. And so this is why we do not baptize infants on the basis of the faith of their parents. Now, we would agree there are many blessings that come from having a Christian family. Um, Many of us who grew up in Christian homes like myself have much reason to rejoice. But ultimately, when it comes to being a part of God's people, we must come on our own. And we must come willing to say, even should all my family turn away from Jesus, I still will follow. Infant baptism denies all of this. Now, I'm running out of time. There's more to be said. Let me just remind you of a couple of things. There is no place in the Bible where we see a child being baptized. There is no example in the Bible of a child being baptized, not one. In the book of Acts, we read of household baptisms, um, and people debate over who is included in those households that were baptized, but the context in Acts tells us that it was people who believed the gospel, so whoever the youngest member of the household was that was baptized, it was still someone who was old enough to believe the gospel. We're not told how old the people were who were baptized, but we are told that all believed. What's more, and I think this is important, there is not a single command in the Bible to baptize our children. Jesus told us to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, who? Disciples. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is why we are Baptists. This is why we don't embrace infant baptism and baptizing children on the basis of their parents' faith. It's why we reject the argument from Romans 4.11 that we are to baptize infants. Well, that raises the last question that we're going to talk about. How should we as Baptists then think about the baptism of children and in particular, our children? This is a question that many of us struggle with. We agree that we should not baptize infants. We should not accept infants as members of the church. But then, at what point should our children be baptized? How young is too young? At what point should our children be joined to the membership of the church? Well, first, we need to point out that baptism is a church ordinance that is in the new testament baptism is connected to joining a church so in acts 2:41 the day of pentecost you have peter preaching the gospel and we read so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls 3000 people heard peter's message believed the gospel were baptized and were added to what added to what Added to the church universal, absolutely. Also added to the people of God there in Jerusalem. How do we know that? The very next verse is Acts 2.42, famous Acts 2.42. Right? And what does it say? They were meeting together every day, breaking bread together, having, listening to the apostles teaching together, praying together. In other words, in the book of Acts, to be baptized is to become a part of a visible people of God in a local church. The only exception, have you already thought of it, is the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He's traveling back home to Africa, right? And yet it's interesting that even though he was baptized without becoming a part of a local church, because he was on his way home, we're told that when he got to Africa, he started the first African church, (laughs) He began the first church in Africa and shared the faith with others. So you see, in the New Testament, to be baptized is to become a part of a local church. This means that a church has the responsibility to make sure that only true believers are baptized. You remember Paul teaching about church discipline in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. There's, There's to be a concern for purity in the church. Why? because we care about the glory of God and our witness in the world. And so if you aren't careful and instead let anyone who wants to get baptized, the church could be riddled with sin and strife and will ultimately fail to be a pillar and a buttress of truth. In Acts, 3,000 people could be baptized because to do so in that day at that time was to make a radical commitment that would, well... Those people knew when they went to be baptized that they were probably going to be looked down upon and persecuted by their neighbors. When those 3,000 people came to be baptized in Acts 2, they did so at the risk of losing their jobs, being disowned by their families, being imprisoned by the religious authorities. There were men like that evil Saul of Tarsus chasing Christians around to imprison them. It was a dangerous thing to be baptized in the name of Christ. In our day it isn't always so clear that people who come for baptism really do believe and understand the radical commitment they're making. In fact, even just a few decades after Acts 2, local churches had stopped the practice of immediately baptizing people upon faith. Rather, most churches began to require a time of teaching and interaction to make sure the person really understood what they were doing when they were being baptized. In part, this is because a person can think that they've repented when in fact they haven't. A person's heart can be deceived. You remember the Pharisees came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Do you remember that? And do you remember how John the Baptist responded? He turned them away. He said he would not baptize them, he said, until they had shown him the fruits of repentance. Repentance. When a person is baptized, the church is saying to that person, we accept you as a real believer. We affirm your faith. We see real evidence of grace in your life. We are rejoicing with you in what God has done in you. Baptism is so much more meaningful when not only the person being baptized is professing their faith, but the church family around them is affirming their faith in the baptism. So this is one of the reasons why I encourage parents. And I've had several families ask me about baptism recently. And it's something that, that I think about often because of our boys. And, and what's the right approach? And um, it's, it's a difficult question. But it's one of the reasons why I encourage parents not to push children towards baptism too early. I was baptized too young. My parents tell me that I knew what I was doing and that I understood it and that I believed, and on the basis of their word, I've never been rebaptized because I accept that as, as true, but I don't remember it very well. And I think the fact that I was baptized so early had a lot to do with why I struggled with doubts of my salvation for many, many years through middle school and most of high school. And I've heard that same testimony from many in this room, by the way. Um... The appropriate age for baptism is not a subject explicitly addressed in the Scriptures. There is no verse we can turn to that says a person that reaches this age is ready for baptism. And so these issues have to be settled for a church through wisdom, discernment, prayer, asking God for help. We need to express kindness and liberty to those churches that that come to different conclusions than we do. Capitol Hill Baptist, we look to them often to, to see how, uh, what a healthy church looks like. Capitol Hill Baptist, you have to be over 18 before you can be baptized. Bethlehem Baptist, John Piper's church can be much, much younger before you can be baptized. Both churches are led by wise, mature elders who are trying to do what is right. They've come to very different conclusions. And so, again, we have to have humility as we try and, and set principles for this for our church. Among Baptists, the practice of baptizing children is actually very new. I don't know if you know this or not. The idea of a Baptist church baptizing children has only been around for about 100 years. Throughout most of Baptist history, children were expected to wait until they had become adults to be baptized. In fact, what's more, this trend of baptizing children is a distinctly American trend. Trend: Most Baptists in Europe and Asia and Africa don't believe in baptizing children. The deacons and I have been working through these issues and in our mind, the credibility of a person's faith is the most important consideration in baptism. The credibility. A church's granting of baptism is the same thing as affirming that person's profession. Baptizing an unbeliever is harmful to the local church, harmful to the significance of baptism, harmful to the gospel message, and harmful to the soul that's being baptized. In our conviction, there is more harm done in baptizing too early than the harm done in withholding until a later age when the profession is more credible and believable. What's more, baptism is a profession that one has chosen to submit oneself to Christ, to follow Christ for the rest of one's life. This decision to submit to Jesus is the most important decision a person will ever make, even more important than whom he or she will marry. And therefore, it's a decision that requires very careful thought, very careful deliberation. Jesus told all who would follow him to carefully count the cost before stepping out in faith. I would suggest that the kind of maturity required to count the cost is is the kind that is not normally found in young children. And then there are all the complications that come from baptizing young children. For example, voting rights in, in members' meetings and um, uh, the very common occurrence of children who later doubt their salvation and wonder if they really understood what they were doing because they were baptized young. and um, if children are baptized into church membership, then, then are they allowed to, to take the Lord's Supper even when they're really, really young? And uh, if children are baptized into church membership young, are parents willing to stand against them in church discipline if they come under the discipline of the church? And there's all these complicated issues that come with baptizing young children of which the Scripture says absolutely nothing. And I think the reason the Scriptures say absolutely nothing about them is because it wasn't a practice that was happening in biblical days. And so in light of these things, I, the wisest approach, in my humble opinion, is all it is, is to postpone the baptism of a child until they've reached a place of maturity in which they can make a more credible profession of faith. I hesitate to put an age number on it because children mature at different ages. All right, I think, I'll, I'll be honest, I do think 18 is probably too high. Uh, I think children really start becoming young adults around 11, 12, 13, 14. And so that's... that's The age range, I'm thinking, but it's it's different, and so it's something that parents and pastors and children have to work through together of when that age has come. That said, I think it is always better to wait until the onset of young adulthood than to baptize children prematurely. There's a lot more to be said on the subject of baptism. Um, We're going to continue talking about it tonight at 6. For now, let me remind you what the main point of the passage is before we leave. Because it's easy for us to lose the main point in the midst of this debate that's been going on for centuries. The main point is, baptism is important, circumcision was important, no ritual is necessary for salvation. It is salvation by faith alone. Your salvation depends on this. Are you turning from living your own life, your own way, and trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus as the one who has made propitiation for your sins? Are you trusting in Jesus as the one who has done everything necessary for you to be counted right with God? The thrust of this passage ought to be whatever we come down on as far as circumcision and baptism and those things, ultimately salvation is by one way and one way only, faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the gospel, and that is what we are to preach, that is what we are to believe. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are tough subjects. And there are times when in our hearts we could